Welcome to the Deep End by On Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and thinkers discuss world-changing stories and ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kozloff. On Deck is where ambitious people worldwide go to start companies, find their next roles, and invest in their careers. The Deep End invites the founders, operators, and investors from the On Deck community and beyond to turn their experiences into the ideas others need to start their own odysseys. This week, we figured we'd give you a peek under the hood of On Deck's programs. Every week, dozens of amazing events take place in our programs across sectors like climate tech, health tech, and longevity, as well as across professional verticals like business development, engineering, and much more. Most of these events happen behind closed doors. But this week, we're releasing one of our favorite sessions of the past seven days to write a taste of what one kind of on-deck event looks like. Listeners will remember we syndicated an episode from Execs with Ben Braverman, who led revenue at Flexport during their hypergrowth years. Now, we're joined in a fireside chat by Flexport's CEO, Ryan Peterson. Ryan joined our ODX fellowship to share lessons learned fixing the global supply chain crisis. Ryan's a fascinating character. When California ports experienced a slowdown in port processing this October, he visited ports in Long Beach to better understand the bottlenecks at play. His Twitter thread about the problems he noticed went viral, and he's able to work with local leaders to more rapidly unload cargo ships. More recently, this week, he was able to share observations he'd noticed in Flexport's freighter process changes in light of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and educate other supply chain leaders on the changing landscape. Ryan's grasp of how to use technology to solve complex macro problems is impressive. He shares his insights, his reflections, and some of his favorite tactics in this episode. For more on On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. All right, time for the episode. Let's dive in. Hello, welcome everyone today. Um, we're going to do a quick intro to the event and set the stage for uh, our talk with Ryan at Flexport. So this is going to be a fantastic fireside chat. Super thrilled to have Ryan here um, in conversation with our very own Eric Torenberg. On Deck is a proud partner with Flexport um, for their incredible platform that powers logistics and supply chains across the world and their dedication to supporting the new wave of entrepreneurs emerging in the space. They're a very awesome investor to many different companies that are now um, building in the supply chain logistics world. For those joining us, for those joining us from outside of the on deck community, we're excited to have you here today. Thank you for coming to this webinar, and for all our on deck founders on the call today, welcome back. Uh, while this webinar um, makes it so that your face isn't visible, your name will be there in the chat. So if you're in stealth, uh, you may want to change your Zoom name now. Um, for today's fireside chat, we'll begin with a conversation between um, our guest Ryan and our moderator Eric before we open the floor to questions from some of our founders in the ODX Flexport Accelerator specifically. Um, due to time, we won't be taking open Q&A from the crowd, but we do hope to have Ryan back to, to dive even deeper soon. Um, and with that, let's get started. So Ryan is the CEO and founder of Flexport, a technology platform for global logistics and a uh, partner of and co-investor with OnDeck for the ODX Flexport Accelerator, which we're very pumped about. Um, prior to starting Flexport to fix his user experience in global trade, Ryan was co-founder and CEO of Import Genius, a data as a service business for global shipping, which kind of laid the ground in his knowledge for being able to build Flexport. Flexport recently announced a 935 million Series E round that valued the company at $8 billion and landed Ryan on the cover of this month's Forbes magazine. He had a really funny tweet about this as well. Um, Ryan will be in conversation with Eric Torenberg, uh, founder and co-CEO here at OnDeck. Uh, he's also a co-founder and general partner at Village Global. Uh, before building OnDeck, Eric was a member of the founding team at Product Hunt and the founder of Wrapped FM, and to this day continues to be an amazing freestyle rapper. Uh, and with that, I'll, uh, I'll let you two take it away. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much, Sam. Thanks so much, Ryan, for Ryan, for being here. My pleasure. Hey, everybody. Um, Ryan, so, so I want to start with the, with the video I'm actually putting in chat. You, uh, it's you giving, doing YC office hours nearly a decade ago with Paul Graham and Sam Altman talking about the earliest, uh, talking about the pitch for Flexport. Uh, take us back to 
to a, a decade ago when you were starting Flexport and, and talk about how the idea evolved over time and, and, and where were you when, when, when you were pitching that in, in the idea? Yeah, so um, it's pretty cool that that video is up there. Uh, it is good to watch if anyone's ever applying to something like Y Combinator. Actually, really any pitch that you have to do, it's a, might be a helpful reference point for how Flexport got started. At that time, it was really just me. I was the only employee of the company at that time, and I think that was in 2013. Um, so it come a long way. But actually, um, what's not known is that I had been working on Flexport for four years prior to that. Uh, as and, wow. you know, So it's like a overnight, you know, 15-year overnight success that we're looking at. Um, and I was the only employee for four years while I tried to figure stuff out. And one of my one of my beliefs is that you shouldn't really go all in on something until you have a very, very high degree of confidence. So I had a lot of fires and, you know, a lot of irons in the fire. I was still running my last company in Fort Genius while kind of hacking on this new idea. And the idea for Flexport came about on long walks with my older brother, who was my partner at Import Genius, about the experience that we used to have as importers, we used to buy products from Asia and actually from South America too, and sell them on the internet. And we, um, we just hated the logistics experience, the customs brokerage, like dealing with government, dealing with paperwork. Uh, and it just seemed like there was an obvious business to be built there. We, we really didn't know if the world wanted that though. So we kind of like, it took a long time to get to validate the idea, to put it out. The original idea was kind of turbo tax for importing, make it easy for an importer to clear customs. Uh, with the idea that you would then keep extending. I don't think the vision has changed that much. It keeps getting better. We keep learning, like, for example, I only thought it would be for small businesses like Amazon merchants and eBay sellers. I didn't realize that the biggest companies in the world had these problems. That was like one evolution. Um, I don't think I quite envisioned like the, the network effects being what they were. It seemed like it would be a really high margin transactional business, high margin because customs clearance is pretty high margin. Uh, I didn't envision, I didn't, quite appreciate the network effect that every now at Flexport, every time we get an importer, we're on average getting 18 of their factories to come on board. Uh, and, and you just drive this cr incredible network effect that a lot of what you're doing then is communicating to those factories through our system, sending them orders, collaborating with them on getting the, the data right. And uh, that was, that was a, that's a step beyond what I envisioned. That TurboTax, if you think about it, is kind of like single player. Like you just do some paperwork and you're done. It wasn't this like whole multiplayer. And that, that was me not appreciating the scope of the problem that actually on a single shipment in, in that Flexport manages, you'll have as many as 18 different companies involved door to door. And all of those companies have to either give data to the system or get data from the system. So it's a much more complicated, complex problem than I envisioned. So like, I don't think the core vision has changed that much, but like the, the way to solve it was much harder than I expected, taking longer. Yeah, I, I can really resonate with, with, with what you said earlier about you were working on it for four years. I, I was working on deck for, for three years before it turned into a, a company and before I, I, I went full, full, full time on it. And it was really just a, a side project. During that time, and, and you mentioned you, you advise people to you know start stuff before, before they go all in really get conviction. What did it look like for you to, to get conviction? Why was it four years in and not two years or six years? And, and what do you advise for other people in terms of like, you know, how do they know when to go all in on something? Yeah. Um, first off, you want to make sure there's real demand from customers. So we built like kind of fake marketing website websites for a couple of different versions of the idea um, to see which would get traction. And then one of them really started to generate a lot of signups. Um, we had 300 companies sign up for Flexport before it ever existed at all. Uh, and including like some big companies started signing up. Foxconn signed up. Uh, Saudi Aramco signed up, like the biggest oil company in the world. And it was a fake website at that time. It was just a website with fake company. Um, so then I knew there was demand, but I didn't have a license to do the business. So that then I had to go back and um, and wait for... U.S. Customs and Border Protection issue with a customs broker's license. And that took several years. I had to go through an FBI background check, um, which is a pain in the ass. So had to go through that. And so actually the day that we consider our founding date at Flexport is the day that we got our customs broker's license. And I was sitting, so it was like kind of a lot of sitting around waiting rather than active work. I, I knew it would be a good idea just based on all the signups that I was getting um, for the site. Uh, in, in general, you know, I, I, I encourage people to make sure that there's 
like you want us to stay alive. Like the thing that leads to startups dying is running out of money. So how do you like, literally that's why they die. Um, so how do you avoid increasing your burn rate while you make sure things are good? And it can be your personal burn rate too, before you've raised a lot of money. It's like, how do you make sure you don't need that? So uh, can you find consulting gigs on the side where you help people, you know, make some money by the hour, uh, find other sources of income. They still give you the flexibility to focus on your dream on your startup. Um, I, I don't know. I, I I don't like it when people are like, oh, I'll do this business as long as I can raise venture capital. It's like it's kind of a lame attitude. And you have then this chicken and egg problem of like the venture capitalist senses that in you and doesn't want to back you. So they need to be like, this person's going to do this with or without me. I better get involved. I better I better invest. Um, so you see, I kind of see that bad behavior. And, and it's been it's worked fine for the last decade. We've been incredible capital markets. Boom, venture capital's crazy. There's such an abundance of capital. So um, but I don't know that those good times last forever. And so you kind of want to make sure that you understand like how to build a business without needing huge amounts of outside injection of capital. And I think if your idea can't get funded by an investor, it's kind of your fault. Like either pick a bit different idea or make your investing, make your pitch better, make your, make your story more compelling. I didn't raise any venture capital for the first, um, first time I raised any venture capital was in 2014. Um, and I've been doing startups since 2002. So, you know, you can do a lot without, without other people's money, but maybe not the big thing that you dreamed of. You might have to pick something different, which is fine. Yeah. And talk about that, that first round that you, that you raised, uh, talk talk about how, how hard it was or, um, talk about how you had to sort of, um, because there were questions as to, you know, you as a service business at the time, or like talk a little bit about what your round was like and where the dynamics um our early our seed round was probably the easiest one we did we were um we went through y combinator i i we were pretty i think we were one of the hotter companies in our batch uh and so it really became kind of an inbound the thing i liked about these accelerators is that it takes fundraising from an outbound sales process of like knocking on doors and feeling kind of desperate to an inbound process where they're winding up coming to talk to you. That's just a crucial difference. Even if it's like, honestly, it doesn't make you that much more successful in the end result. You might be able to get it done on your own. It's just like such a higher um, probability, emotional situation where you, you know, your pitch is much stronger when they came to you than when you were coming begging. Uh, I always feel like a loser. Even now, like our series E, that I just did where I mentioned in the intro, I raised $935 million. I was going outbound to people and I felt like a total loser. And they all said, no, it was wow. the inbound people that said yes, as yeah. you know, as usual. So if you can get that and that fundraising doesn't really get easier to be honest, um, kind of gets harder because people are, don't judge you on your track record. They judge you on what you're going to do in the future. And what they perceive you're going to do, they're not getting paid. They don't want to get. They don't want to pay you for what you did the last few years. Like you know, that, that's an, that's already done. They want to know what you're going to do from here out, and that never gets much easier. So um, you got to yeah, just keep working on your business. It feels like the best, most important thing. And I, I do. If we get into it, I can give more fundraising tips. But I'm not sure that's the most interesting thing in the world. Well, let's uh, we'll, we'll get back to it in, in a bit. Um, one thing I want to talk about on the idea formation side is. How much domain ex- expertise did you have on this specific problem? And and since we're investing in companies, you know, in this sort of domain, how, how important is it that people get domain expertise? And how do you recommend they they, they get it? Um, I had very little domain expertise. I knew about the problem. Like I had experienced the problem as a customer. We used to, my brother and I used to run this business importing products uh, from China and selling them on the internet. So we knew about how hard it was to import stuff. We didn't know why it was that hard. We didn't know how to solve it. Um, and that's probably why it took so long, like four or five years before we got our first revenue from the time we had the idea that when we actually got some revenue. And so, yeah, if I'd had domain experience, I bet I could have got licensed much faster. Probably would have had a friend that already had the license to join me on the team, or maybe I would have just had the license because that's what people who are domain experts have. Um, I might've known more what people in the company should do in the first few years and be able to tell them exactly what to do. So you might actually progress faster if you have a lot of domain experience, but you don't build that culture of like, hey, I don't really know the answer, but I know that the problem matters. I know that solving it would be really valuable for the world. And I can sell that to a great talented team and attract that team and empower them. 
And so you kind of like go a little bit slower because you can't tell everyone what to do, but you build a culture that doesn't defend, depend entirely on the founder's knowledge and on the founder, therefore, that you can kind of get a, a build this like great culture where people are empowered to solve the problem and not wait for someone to tell them what to do. And, and I, I think, so we might've gone faster in the beginning. We certainly wouldn't have taken four years to get licensed. And then several years after that to like get a decent business and we had to get more licenses over time. Um, but I, I don't know that we would have, I think it would have depended on much me, uh, me, on me much more than it has like Flexport. I haven't been telling people what to do at Flexport very much. They kind of like, we've built that culture where people figure it out. Yeah. T t talk about the the early team that you built on Flexport, the, the first people to join Flexport. And um, and, and what is your perspective or, or, or advice or philosophy on kind of the first people to join, whether it's co-founders or, or, or early teammates? Yeah. So the very first person I hired was a woman who was a licensed customs worker. And so she knew she actually had some of the expertise and the license that I needed um, to transact. So I uh, had to add that to the team, but she wasn't um, and she, she stayed with us all the way until I think she retired, she retired last year. She retired like awesome, like not just from Flexport, but retired, uh, which felt, which felt great. And we had a big party for her, but she wasn't like that entrepreneurial grinding hustler that you would want in a startup. She was really like there to teach me, you know, how customs worked and how it all, and, and like help serve some of our customers. So then, um, the, the, then the next hire we made and they were, I think she's joined about six months before while it was still kind of, she was part, she was part-time in the beginning. Um, the next hire we made was an investment, ex investment banking, like associate or analyst or something pretty junior. He had done like two, three years at an investment bank out of college. And then was our first um, full-time hire. Um, and these were full-time hires in the beginning. I was bootstrapping the business. So I had a team of engineers in the Philippines who were contractors who built like the V1 for me. So, but I didn't, I'm not counting them. They weren't, they weren't full-time employees. They were just uh, contractors. Uh, the full-time employees then uh, was a, a guy named Anthony Chen, who um, he's, he's, he's awesome. And he was just a grinder. He still is just a grinder. He just worked really hard. Uh, I think investment banking kind of has that culture. So I recommend that people hire like this kind of jack of all trades who's willing to do any job. They're not too good for anything. They'll do customer service. They'll file, file for licenses. They'll, just like whatever work needs to get done, they'll do it. And investment bankers, like they, they have this culture where the junior people work like 18 hours a day every day. And I like that. So I just never told Anthony that that's not everywhere in the world. He just kept working 18 hours a day. And then I wasn't an asshole to him. Like his old bosses probably were. He never told me that, but I assume in investment banking, that's the culture. So um, I recommend people get that kind of a generalist on the team who can just like offload stuff that you don't want to do. So you can focus on the product vision, Maybe he actually did a lot of our early sales. He was he was a real hustler. So uh, he also stayed with us for like six, probably five or six years before he decided it was uh, ready to move on to the next thing. Yeah, and we're lucky to be uh, teaming up with him for OD ODX Flexport, which we'll, we'll get into in, in a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm getting some 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 DMs who want me to follow up on the on the fundraising tips, Ryan. If you could um, give your favorite frameworks or favorite advice, you know, lots of people here will be raising their their seed round in, in a bit. What, what's your yeah? Um. Yeah, so I think fundraising is, it's very tricky to give generic advice. So first off, just be cautious of like, you know, every company's different, every company's its own unique situation and can't, can't just follow blindly the advice that you get. Um, but I do think there's something where, it, and, and also I only have the experience of me and I've invested in a bunch of companies, but I, I, just like this is based on my own personal experience from, from Flexports raises, is that I think it's, the relationships in fundraising are overrated. Um, in my experience, investors have all day to build relationships. That is their job. And they will they will just meet with you over and over as many times as it takes. And it doesn't actually send you any, there's almost no signal in those conversations. They, they have every incentive to pretend they love you because it just creates an option value for them. Um, and they don't, why not? It costs them almost nothing. That's their job is to network. And maybe you introduce them to some other startup that's good. So like, I think all of that is basically wasted time. Um, it feels like you're building relationships. The odds that any one uh, startup, any one investor you met invests in your startup are pretty low. Uh, and so when you take the amount of time that you would spend building those relationships, it's pretty wasted. Um, and so I don't recommend building relationships with investors. It's kind of counterintuitive, but um, the reality is they'll like you. They'll be even more intrigued if you're like hard to playing hard to get and are staying super focused on your business. Um, they'll like you. they'll actually like you more. They'll be they'll like 
that, um, yeah, playing hard to get is really valuable. And it's and, and also valuable for you. You got to work on your company, make your metrics better. That's what they're going to like. Then, um, and now if you do happen to chat with investors, have coffee, maybe run into them at an event or something, don't share any metrics with them. Like full on, just don't tell them any metrics. Because even if your metric looks great, you're now committed to that being the metric. And maybe that metric won't look great when you go to raise. And you want to make sure that the... Right, you want to be able to ex post sample on what's the best metric looking backwards at that moment you're raising, and maybe it's some other metric that looks the best at that time. And now you've you've cut yourself off because once you share this metric, this is the important metric, they're gonna write that down, they're gonna track it, and then they're gonna ask you about that same metric. So don't share any metrics ever until you're ready to raise. Then when you do want to go raise, I have, by the way, I've not done all this stuff, and it's fine if you mess it up. Like I didn't do these things. It's just like this is like a framework that I think would be better than the way I did things. Is that when you do want to go raise, um, pick what is the metric. Well, actually, decide when you want to raise, and it's um, it's usually when you've got some metric that you can make go hyperbolic. They're they're looking for exponential graphs. They're looking for curves that go like this, and like. I have a great startup portfolio as an investor and like the best companies have these crazy hockey stick graphs that go like that constantly, like every quarter, no matter what, it always looks the same, just a hockey stick. Um, and so that is what you're getting compared to. And so you need to be able to find what is your hockey stick graph somewhere in there. And maybe it's not your revenue. Maybe it's not the graph you wish it was. Maybe it's some random number of users doing something like you, you, you're going to want to ex post, go back and look what is for the lat, uh, what is the graph that go like this? And so once you've found one and you've made it look like a hockey stick for 60 days, that's the moment to call an investor and be like, hey, I finally figured something out. This is what it is. Look at this graph and make sure that you can sustain that for the next, maybe actually it's only 30 days and then make sure you can sustain it for another 60 days. Cause that's probably how long it takes to raise it around. And so you wanna be like, it's great if you can call them and say, hey, look, we figured this out. We've figured out how to make things go hyperbolic, look at the last 30 days and know that that will continue for at least the next 60 days to get the round done. Uh, and then you can go back to focusing on the right thing to grow your business, which might not be that one metric that happens to be going hyperbolic, but uh, investors invest in hockey sticks. Like that's what the whole game is about. It's finding these power law, crazy return outcomes that always look like an exponential graph. Um, and so I think, not having those conversations at all with investors until you have that graph is pretty important because um, they're going to measure you on some other metric that's not the right one. And yeah, again, I, I, I think that relationships are super overrated. Almost, you will have a great relationship. I promise you, if you have amazing metrics, they will freaking <laughs> kiss your ass and be your best friend. And and then as you what you know have good investor. Uh, so then another thing that I say, if you're lucky enough to get the round done and you start having it. I really recommend um, as you pull that round together, try to create room for a couple of other investors to put in smaller checks who could lead the following round. Um, that way you have like internal dynamics of competition that your next round could be in um, just without having to go to market. Going to market is sucks. Like you're very high probability failure rate, tail between your legs, begging someone to do the round, like very likely that will fail. Um, much better if you have three internal current investors to kind of compete to lead the next round. Um, and so if you get a lead, try to convince them to let you carve out a little bit of room. And these investors will write smaller checks as option value to get to know you. Maybe they do it as a personal investment rather than from their fund, throw in 25 or hundred K or something. Um, and so if you can get three, then the ideal situation is that the next time you go out to raise, instead of going out and, and shopping it to 20 people, just having a couple of, um, internal investors do it um, and compete. And it's enough to compete. Uh, ideally, there is a lot of collusion. And that's the next lesson, I think, in fundraising is that there's an insane amount of collusion in Silicon Valley between investors and rumor mill and gossip and everything. It's not because these are bad people. It's the nature of the job. Venture capitalists make a lot of money and they basically can't be measured for like 10 years. You're not going to get fired. Like, what a great job. You don't want to fuck it up. So how would you screw that up if you were a VC? Well, you, you the only way to get fired, actually, is for everyone to agree that you're doing dumb things. Because no one knows if it's good or not. It takes 10 years for your fund to return and for your businesses to mature. So it's only if everybody agrees that you're being stupid or crazy or making bad investments. 
And why? And so the way to make sure that everyone doesn't agree with that is to run all your deals by other people and, and make sure that they don't think this is crazy. And so you get regression to the mean. And what you're looking for as the founder is, is outliers. You're looking for someone to pay more than everybody else. But, then, but gossip leads to regression to the mean. And so how do you minimize gossip? It has to be a key part of what you do. And that's why I think doing it, having like a group of internal people who are not out there shopping it to the world, but just uh, that would be ideal. The, the fewer investors you talk to, the higher the price. It's very counterintuitive. Because if it was a wide open market, you'd think the more people you add, the more likely you are someone outbids everybody else. But the reality is they're all trying to avoid looking stupid by overpaying um, or doing a deal that no one else would do. So you get regression to the mean. So small number of parties, don't invite everyone and their mom to the part to the round. These guys want to feel like they've got uh, they've built proprietary deal flow, that they're in something, and that when they go to reference check it, the other guy's like, Oh, I've never heard of that company. Like that's the ideal. Then they feel like they're really doing their great job. Whereas if they if they go and talk, oh yeah, I looked at that, it's not very good, they're gonna immediately write you down, right? So um, small number of people, tight timelines. Like don't allow the thing to drag on, on and on for months because then it's kind of like a, that house on Zillow that's been on the market for like three years. There's no one who wants it, um, even though it might be great. So like there's these dynamics that you wanna kind of keep it tight, minimize gossip. Um, I'll tell you an example, like once in our series B, I was talking to this fund and on the third meeting, I was still talking to like an associate and I'm not one of these people that like refuses to talk to associates. I, I kind of think that's like a shitty way to live in, in, in 20 years that associate is probably gonna be more powerful and successful than I am and want them to remember that I was cool. Uh, and so I was, but on the third meeting, I should be like at a partner by now, right? If, if they like me. And so when, when the associate came back to my office for the third time, I told him, hey, you know what? We've decided to go in a different direction with this round. And within an hour, I got like four phone calls from the other investors I was still talking to who thought that I had moved on. So that gives you the sense of like the amount of within an hour that was happening. It's like high school gossip, like times times infinity um, in Silicon Valley investor circles. So be aware of these dynamics. They're a natural outcome of the nature of VC. And it's sad because you should be finding risk takers who like that's the what venture capital should be is like don't care what other people think or are. Um, willing to put their neck out there and look stupid and stuff. And I, I think there's only a handful of funds that really do that for one of my uh, big investors is founders fund. And I really do think that they're kind of different in that regard. They're not, for the most part, they're not out there attending VC conferences and do, participating in that gossip rumor mill. They're happy to, to like kind of go their own way. So um, try to try to find people like that who are a little bit willing to look stupid if that's, if that's what it takes, because their returns are better than everybody else's too. It's not, not surprisingly. That's uh, that's great, great, great fundraising advice. Great, uh, great advice more more broadly. Um, I want to segue a bit to to what we're doing with with ODX Flexport, um, and 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 what you're doing with the Flexport Fund more broadly. First, talk about I want to talk about why you, you uh, we're doing it, why you're doing it, and maybe talk why in terms of what is the opportunity uh, just out there in the world, uh, and, and 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 but then also talk about why it makes sense for Flexport specifically to get involved in this way. Yeah, well, I just think that um, global logistics, supply chains, they all have to be reinvented with modern companies. Actually, I think this is basically true of most institutions in the world. Um, we've seen it over the last two years of the pandemic. It's really exposed that like so many of the institutions we count on are kind of hollow, lacking leadership, bunch of bureaucrats running it, um, tech, ancient technology hasn't been updated. Um, and logistics and supply chain are pretty scale driven and, and global and a lot of expertise and licenses. So it's been even more impervious to, to innovation and new startups. Um, and, and therefore there's like even worse behavior from the, from the incumbents when it, when it takes when it comes to innovation and building, uh, building technology and deploying more customer centric models. So um, we felt, I feel like they all need to get replaced, all the companies in the industry. And, and these are massive industry. It's like 14% of global GDP is global logistics. Um, and it, and you're going to see in 20 years, it's like a whole, I believe that all the current companies are basically going to get replaced or they have to, if they, and especially if they don't have someone on the executive team at at least the same, at least the level of a CFO of the CFO who has a computer science degree. Yeah. Like if they're not at the table advocating for technology and none of them do effect basically. 
Um, and so I look at that and go, wow. I mean, first of all, Flexport needs to continue executing and taking as much share as we want and crush every, you know, take as much of that as we can, but we can't do it all. The, the world is huge. There's so many adjacent markets. There's so many um, technologies and products that need to exist that like Flexport can't do all of that. And yet it needs to get done. And we'd love to help companies participate in companies. Some of it is emotional. Like I see other people doing things that I wish we were doing. And then I feel envy and that's an unhealthy emotion. So like I rather invest in them and now I can celebrate the success. And that's part of it too, is like, I think you want to get, um, those are bad emotions. Like if you, if you feel that you're, um, when you see someone else succeeding, if you ever let your brain associate that with any kind of negativity with success, you're training your brain to like run away from success and run away from money or anything else. And so you need to make sure it's kind of a, a little bit of a mental hack for me personally. There is like this way we can help the people and participate, even if we don't a tiny piece of it, it's still like, Hey, we, we want to help. We want to, we want to be part of the success instead of feeling envy. Um, and so, yeah, I, th I think there's just incredible opportunities and it'll go beyond what we can do with either ODX or the Flexport fund where we're, and we're trying to, with the Flexport Fund, we've built, um, really, we kind of took like my own personal angel investing strategy, which is like, we're not, we're not leading rounds or, or we've done a couple, but pretty rarely do we lead around. It has to be really in our wheelhouse to feel like we're going to price around. We're not, that's not really our expertise. We're going to find people who have raised around of capital from good investors and will participate, but therefore we can be like really, really light on diligence um, and just move really, really quickly don't um, do not do any of like the weird bad behavior that corporates do where everything has to be strategic and part of some big partnership or something. It's like, let's just invest, see where we can help, maybe introduce to some of our customer base, um, introduce to talent. We're pulling together a Flexport alumni program. We've got amazing people who helped us build this business. We have let many, sadly, many of them have moved on. Can we, can we channel those to participants in our fund or in the accelerator um, and just teach some of the strategies that we've, that helped us grow. And uh, yeah, it's, um, it's pretty exciting. The early results are, you know, it's too, too early to say, but like, it's so fun. It's probably the last part. It's like fun. We like to learn. We want to build relationships. In a few years, we want to have an app store. Uh, sadly, it's like a few years out roadmap wise for us. But we, we think it'd be really cool if we allowed startups that have interesting technology or services that our customer base would want and like made it really easy for the customers to buy that in a, through, through an API-based infrastructure. So um, that maybe there's some bigger strategic things to be done down the road right now. We're mostly about learning, building relationships. Like I assume we'll acquire a handful of the companies that, that fit the best uh, or that maybe things aren't working out and they're looking for a good home. So lots of reasons to do it. Totally. Um, you know, as, as you know, at OnDeck, we have a bunch of people, you know, who before they started their next company have, have joined OnDeck. They're, they're looking for ideas. Um, let's go a little bit deeper into why they should consider uh, logistics supply chain or or if you have any requests for startups or areas of how to even get started. Let's say you don't have a background in the space, but you're a really talented engineer or, or whatever it is. W what advice do you, might, you, might you have? Yeah, and, and this comes back to your earlier question about domain expertise, which I think can be a little overrated. And yet you want to see the problem. You want to know what the problem is. So you got to have some degree of exposure to problems. This is why I'm like really skeptical of this idea that like 18 year old, 22 year old founders are going to be the best. They just don't have probably enough life experience to have seen the real problems. Like they actually, maybe in the consumer world they do. And like they start, they're, they're more in tune with the, what the trends are of, of new tech for consumers. But I think for enterprise tech, like how would they have seen those problems that exist in the business world without having done business for a while. And um, I think you, um, Paul Graham has a great essay about this called Schlepp Blindness, which I suggest maybe someone can post it in the chat. Um, and it's a Schlepp is a Yiddish word for an arduous journey. So Schlepp Blindness is this idea that um, you, you, our conscious brains are pretty much blind to the biggest problems that we see in life, that we can't actually make ourselves think about it at all. Um, and I, I assume that's an evolutionarily adaptive feature of the brain is that if you spend all your time thinking about death, you probably wouldn't get much done um, in life. And, and that death is, of course, the biggest problem. Um, but, uh, but we're kind of blind to the biggest problems that, that exist all around us. We take them for granted. We just accept them. And if you can kind of train your brain to get a little bit more pissed off about the problems that you see in your day-to-day -day life, and, and especially if you want to be enterprise tech, which I'm, I'm a big believer enterprise tech is 
uh, it's the for me it's the only place where you find rational human beings if there is such a thing um there, there's not but the closest thing you find is in the enterprise space and consumers i have no idea how to understand what they're going to do next with you but you know i'm not that uh, more power to you if you can do that um but in the enterprise tech space it's how do you get really intimately familiar with problems and let yourself get pissed off and this is a can be a negative character trait like you can't go to a restaurant with, with me without me fucking analyzing the bottlenecks of like, what the hell's wrong with this? Why isn't the server come over here? Why is the, the hostess being the one seating the people when they're also supposed to be the one taking new orders at the queue? Um, but you got to get, you got to allow those kind of emotions to um, to boil up and then write down all the problems, maintain lists of ideas of the biggest problems you could solve. Um, some of the best ideas start as jokes. Um or, or just, yeah, just solving problems you see. So like little known fact, I actually uh, co-founded a company called room.com, uh, which makes office phone booths that you can um, do a f- quiet phone call. And that originated because I just like was trying to m- make phone calls and I don't like people listening to me on the phone call. Even if I don't have anything private to say, I just like, I feel awkward when people are listening to my conversations. Uh, and so I hired at Flexport, I hired this carpenter on Craigslist to make phone booths for us. And they were the worst, most terrible thing that they were like dark. And um, we put in a lot of soundproofing, but soundproofing is also uh, heat insulation. So they would just get everyone who went in there came out completely sweaty, like just dripping. And yet they were in use 24 every minute of the day. There was people in the phone booths uh, in these crappy, dark, sweaty phone booths. So I knew that that was a good idea. And I talked about it enough at parties, basically. Where I was like, man, someone should make a company that does this. And eventually one of my friends was like, I'll do that company um, with you. And I funded it and got you know, some of the first ideas, you know, prototypes built together. And now it's like a got a $50 million valuation or something. They'll do 50 wow. million in sales this year. It's probably worth more than that. Um, and so, yeah, being like, the, now that gave me too much confidence. Now I'm like, oh, all my stupid ideas are probably $50 million companies uh, and they're not. But, but like, if, if every time you talk about an idea, then people are like, I want to buy that from you, then that's probably good. If you, if you talk about an idea and nobody ever wants to buy it from you, it's like probably a bad idea. It's fine. Just like keep trying new ideas uh, and making sure it's things that people are actually pissed off about. Um, another thing is I recommend people to become kind of good at a lot of things instead of great at one thing. So there's really, generalists are really undervalued in this, in our society. If you do a PhD, in history, you're not like, I probably know more about history than the average history PhD because they'll like zoom in on like 1790 in some province of France instead of uh, instead of like what's the long durée of global spanning the, the, you know, the millennia of human of the human experience. Uh, I think there's a lot of value because our society overvalues specialization. There's a lot of value if you can be like kind of OK or decent at 10 different things. Yeah. Uh, and then find novel ways to mix, mix those and match those. And so that's where computer science had such an impact is like you're taking this discipline of building databases, of, um, of using the Internet and, and new, te- new kinds of AI and new tech and applying it to all the other domains. That, that, it's that synergy. It's that you know, c- cross-pollination that's so powerful. Um, but you can do that further, like be a great public speaker. Anyone can, can be a top 25% public speaker. And then layer on to that, you know, two or three other things. The next thing you know, you've got a, an interesting uh, configuration to be able to solve problems. Totally. Um, I'm going to ask uh, one more question, then pass it over to our, to our Q&A. Um, you know, we're going to have our ODX Flex, Flexport companies go to, go to demo day soon. Some are already raising nice rounds. Others are, are going to be out there raising nice rounds. Um, when, you, when you talk to investors, um, what, what misconceptions are, do they have on the logistics space or, or where do they need to get more, more comfortable or, or have a better understanding of, of the real opportunity and, and how as founders can we help educate uh, investors who may not be experts in, in the space, hey, you know, the, the, the thing that you're worried about, you shouldn't be worried about as much or here's what you're not seeing about how big this can be. Yeah, um, there's, a lot of, um, it, there's a lot of investors who only do software and a lot of logistics companies are more service providers and they're, they're not selling software. They're using software to sell a service. Flexport. We don't, we have a small software business, but we're basically a logistics service provider. Um, and a lot of investors don't do that. And you can waste a lot of time as a founder 
pitching someone who's like never done this type of investment before. So I think it's, it's on the founder to do their homework. If they've never done an investment, that's not pure software, you're probably wasting everybody's time, but especially your own time uh, in, in pitching them. Um, and so rather than trying to convince, you're probably not going to convince them to change their, their whole thesis. So I wouldn't bother wasting time. That said, I think I, I did have some very funny conversations over the years where, for example, they told me that like, Hey, you're never going to get the price to earnings multiple, of a technology company if you're in logistics. Well, the reality is that freight forwarders, which is kind of where Flexport started, have a higher price to earnings multiple than most tech companies. Uh, go look at it, you know. Uh, and so what they had, you know, it's like, it's like this basic conception. But once you're having that conversation, it's too late. You're never going to convince them to come around. So I think I think getting real clarity, it's on you to get clarity of like what's in their portfolio that's somewhat related. It doesn't even have to be in logistics, but is there something in here where it's tech-enabled services? If you're a tech-enabled services company, which many um, many kind of ODX portfolio and logistics uh, companies are in general, there's there's totally nothing wrong with that. I think, well, another way is another misconception that investors have is um, really focusing on percentage points of margin. And that's what they were getting at is like, well, your margin rate's too low. And I think that uh, any focus on, go look at Jeff Bezos. He's probably done the best to educate investor investment community about this is like, um, looking at percentage, you can't eat, what's his famous quote? You can't eat a percentage point, but you can eat a dollar of free, free cash flow. Um, and, and if you focus on, I think the way to measure margin, whether you're a high or low margin business is what's your um, dollars of free cash flow per hour of labor worked. Hmm. And there, you know, if I'm a 1% take rate business, but that 1% gets me a thousand bucks for 30 minutes of labor from a new grad, I've just, I've just turned a new grad into like a high-end law lawyer at a, at a high-powered law firm. Yeah. Well, that's not low margin. Like no one would accuse the, you know, the, low, the, the lawyer of being a low margin business, maybe not scalable. And that's why it's really important that you do it like per hour of labor and you show like efficiency curves that as you get bigger, you can improve that curve. So you don't need to employ tens of thousands of people. And here's where technology allows you to do that. Um, so I think... Get, but again, if you're having to convince investors, you're probably talking to the wrong investors. You're better off finding people who have made investments in related spaces, even if it's like, again, like in healthcare or something else, some other area where there's a service rather than a um, just a pure software product. And, and that's fine. People have specialization, but there are plenty of investors who do kind of do services, tech enabled services or um, and, and the, make sure you're spending the time with the right people. Awesome. That, that's great advice. We're going to switch over to, uh, to some founder Q&A. Uh, Sam, want to take it away? Yeah, absolutely. This is incredible, Ryan. So much wisdom here. So we're going to bring up uh, four or five founders that we have from the ODX Flexport program to ask some questions to you. We're going to actually start with Daniel from Logistify, if we can bring him up. Go ahead, Daniel. Yeah. Um, hi, Ryan. Hi, everybody. My name is Daniel um, with Logistify. So we provide inventory management. Uh, for suppliers of food and beverages in Kenya and generally Africa. So my question is around people. So initially when we started, we thought we would build software to eliminate humans in the loop, but more and more we're seeing that um, there's this back and push between our customers. They need access to the software. They need access to our warehouses. And uh, I know Flexport Flexport's model combines technology, human expertise, and I was wondering how you've gone about doing that because we're small and we're already at more than 120 people in just one year. That's going to yeah. get bigger. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and I think it's okay to have people. I think that people, you organize them well, they can be a real competitive advantage. It's also okay to own assets, um, in my view. And, and, and the reason is because no one else wants to do it. And so when other people don't want to do things, if you're the one that does it, you can win. But you got to be careful not hiring too many people. You can break your culture really fast. And if you're doubling headcount year over year, um, it's very hard. I think there is a limit to how many people you can hire and still maintain the culture. A um, couple of things that are going to be key is one, how do you organize those people so that they really own something? And what we did at Flexport was our, uh, build squads that were customer facing. And so that that customer always talked to the same group of people. Those people always work together to serve that book of business, to serve those group of customers. And, um, and then we have other squads that serve a certain operations component, like uh, moving freight from a given port into a 
the region behind it. Um, and, and then the interface, the technology needs to connect that front end and the back end. But in the beginning, we didn't have that back end piece. It was like the customer facing team did all the work. Um, and one, you get a sense of ownership. The customer feels like they're talking to a small business when people, when they call it's the same people every time they know who they are, that, that team can kind of form a camaraderie. That's really important for a culture to form. They, they would pick funny team names, hang out together, you know, maybe go to the bar after work. Like there was, there's a sense of camaraderie and culture. So I think the way you organize yourself is really important. Give them ownership over things, allow them to have metrics that they're responsible for, can take pride in, et cetera. Um, so that's, that's one very important thing. Another one is your values. Like what does the company stand for? Um, these things feel a little cheesy in the early days especially for entrepreneurs. I think we really struggle with this because like the reason we're starting a company is we don't want to work for some big company that has these like statements, slogans on the wall. And it, it can feel a little cheesy to the entrepreneur, but what you'll realize, and you're probably at this point is like, once you're past about 30 people, once you're past the number of people that you can manage directly or that they can manage directly, it starts to become really hard to transmit. What are we trying to do here? Why are we doing it? What do we stand for? What what's what behavior is acceptable and not acceptable? Uh, and so you need to codify these things. Um, writing down your mission statement, getting really clear about why you're doing what you're doing, so that people know, you know, what's the vision? Where are we going? What what will the world look like when you succeed? What will be different and better about the world? And then your values, which um, I think a good way to do your company values is really to look at the trade offs that you're willing to make. Um, it's easy to put up a bunch of nice words on the board, but they're not that valuable unless you're trading something off. Like you're willing to say, look, we value this thing more than that thing. And, and get, a, get, um, get some of your early team, the people that you trust the most, the most important people in the business in a session where you sort of make those trade-offs explicit. Like we'd be talk about times that you made a trade-off. Maybe you were willing to sacrifice short-term money in order to do the right thing for a customer. You were willing to, uh, you know, you have creativity and standardization. Those might be at odds. They're both good. What's better? What's more important to you and your, at your time? But, and if you can get clarity uh, about what those trade-offs that you're willing to make are, and you can kind of communicate that through your value system, it'll help with decision-making. Because as you scale, you have a thousand people that need to make decisions that are in line with your values. And you don't want it to just be corporate slogans on the wall. You want it to be like, hey, this is actually helping me to make a decision. Um, and I've never really, with Flexports values, I've never really seen people violate our values except like in service of a different value. And that's okay. Like your values can, can have some kind of inherent conflicts in there because you want to train your leaders, especially your managers of to identify a decision that's like creating that conflict so they can slow down and think about what they want to make. Uh, what, which, which decision best serves the company's interests and vision. So uh, codifying that's really important. Um, and then I think another uh, really important thing that we're just still learning right now is how do you do planning? Um, and, you know, what, who's gonna, what are you going to work on? What are you going to prioritize? You can do anything you want, but you can't do everything. And so really getting clarity, what's important? What are we going to do first? What are we not going to do? And getting teams to write that down. So at our scale, we have 3,000 people. We have about 30 different business units that do this planning process where you every year you write a five-year plan, vision for your team. And then in, we do that in July, August. And then you write a one-year plan in October of what you're going to do next year. And then we give you budget against who has the best plans and the best track record of executing those plans in the past. And then that determines their headcount. Uh, and, and then we check in with them monthly. How's the execution against the plan? The plan needs to show what's the metrics every month that they're going to hit. So then we can compare plan versus actual metrics and learn, you know, what do they need to course correct, change, improve, et cetera. So some of the, you might be too early for such a regimented planning process, but you want to have the outlines of this so that as you scale, these things are much harder to put in when you're big than they are when you're small. We'll talk, we'll talk more about that. I'd love that you're asking the people questions. The most important thing by far is how do you get the right talent and empower them and, um, you know, recruit the best talent. You should be able to be the employer of choice in Kenya. Uh, and so how do we, how do we make you that? I think is the big question. It's very awesome. Thank you, Ryan, for the answer. And, and thanks, Daniel, for asking. Great. And then next up, we have Arun from hyphen SCS to ask a question. Hi, Dan. How are you? Hey, man, I'm doing great. 
Yes, we are building India's uh, biggest platform for warehousing and fulfillment. So uh, I, I have a question: Which services do you build and validate, or probably focus first when your vision is to build a full stack service platform? The service with the largest, uh, you can say, market size or GMV, or the one with the highest ROI, or probably the one with the biggest pain point of the customer, mm. or something which is easier to build and validate. or something which is easier to accept by the customers or any hybrid between them because you also built a complete full stack services and at an initial level we can only focus on a limited set in order to yeah. build and well. yeah that's my question um i would i would hesitate to tell you like there's one answer to that question uh make sure because you can only build a limited number of things make sure that whatever you build the customer definitely wants and will buy so i think a lot of entrepreneur a lot of startups is is doing entrepreneurial sales um which is different than regular sales entrepreneurial sales you need to get the customer to say yeah it is always a yes i need a yes if yes i will buy from you if you can do this thing and 99% of the time it's like some crazy thing that you can't do but that 1% needs to become your product roadmap and that way whenever you build something the customer will use it it's tragic to watch us build software that the customers don't want that happens all the time it's so sad because you're like man there's so many things we know they want why didn't we build that um and so no excuse for that you have that's entrepreneurial sales you get a yes if regular sales you're trying to get a no as fast as you can because you then you just disqualify that customer go to the next one once you have a product market fit once you have a product you know that they want awesome just get no's so you can get those people out of the way and find the yes uh because the yeses must be out there or or you know you built this product for somebody Um and so that's a very different skill set and this is what a lot of entrepreneurs get wrong is they hire like an experienced salesperson early on and the experienced sales people what they do is dial for dollars and they're happy to hear no all day because they don't care they just keep getting the next one and eventually they get a yes but that's not really helping drive your product roadmap um so founders need to do that or or get uh, you know I had um Ben Braverman who's really good at getting yeses from people then he would get a yes if and then again 95% of the time or more we couldn't do that thing but the product roadmap became the things that we could do. So we didn't do a lot of quantitative analysis, market sizing or ROI or some of these things. It's just like make sure that you're building something that really solves the customer problem and would help you win the right kinds of customers. Um and that that'll depend on your business. I wouldn't want to give generic advice for what the right kind of customer is. Very awesome. And uh next we have And make sure you have fun with it, you know, go out and learn from the people what they want. what are the problems and make that keep that list documented all great thanks so much Ryan and thank you Erin uh next up we have Gian from Parnity which we'll bring up and i think this will be our our last question here okay hello sam hello ryan uh nice to meet you uh i'm the ceo of parnity uh we are a brazilian company um we are connecting independent freight forwarders from all over the world inside the platform uh we have forwarders in 152 countries we're talking about 4000 small and medium sized forwarders uh and you know that Ryan you need to establish partnership with all those forwarders and all those forwarders are make partnerships all the times they're not tech companies at all very traditional mm. especially when you are in 152 countries how you guys in flexport solve the question of handle with so many not tech companies as truckers forgers and all the other stakeholders in logistics is so many companies as you said before and they're not using tech at all and then flexport came with this idea to change uh the market i guess you have faced a lot of challenges to deal with these non tech uh companies how it was and how you still facing this challenge and if you can say with all the other forgers as well um yeah well you want to you want to be able to see the world through their eyes what do they care about and i know your market pretty well i know what they care about is they care about money they want to make money you show them how they're going to make more money by working with you than they would elsewhere they'll definitely do what you ask and so we focus a lot on the customer but for us it was the customer the importer the exporter they're trying to buy these services so if i have those customers here then i guarantee you the forwarder will come on board they want the money they want the revenue they want the customer base um and that's your challenge in your business model which is slightly different from ours is how do you 
get, can you build a two-sided marketplace, multi-sided marketplace really, but can you get the, the demand on here that will for sure attract the supply? Um, if not, it doesn't mean you can't build the business, but you're going to have to, what can you do for them with your software? Can it help them save money? Can it help them offer a better customer experience to the customers they already have, which is, you know, it's got to be what's in it for them. Why is this better for them? Um, and it's a lot of sitting down and say, if you could, yes, entrepreneurial sales. And again, if you could do this, then I would buy the software. Then I would come and provide services on your platform, et cetera. Um, so I think that's just a valuable life lesson is just like see the world through the other people's eyes. A lot of us are really bad at this, um, but it's the key to entrepreneurship and it's, and it's many sided. It's like both your customer, you need to understand what they want. You need to see what investors are looking for. They want the hockey stick graph. They want to know that you're, they're not going to look stupid when they invest in you, that you're not going to, that, um, yeah, that you're not going to fail in a short period of time and make them look bad. Um, importers and exporters want something different. So it's how do you balance all the different stakeholders and see the world through their eyes? It's, it sounds simple. It's kind of hard sometimes to, to get it right. Um, but at the end of the day, these forwarders that you're serving, they just want money. They're not that, they're not that hard. And they're not, they're willing to use tech. And like the owner is not even going to use the tech themselves. They don't mind telling their team to use something if it sure. saves them money or makes them money. So you just have to be able to show that, yes, it will do that. Um, might be hard to do. So what's the simplest tool that you could build that would create some value rather than needing this like perfect everything. It solves every problem in the world as a startup, you almost by definition can't do that. So what's something smaller that you could save them money on right away. Got it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Awesome. We probably do one more already. Thanks, Sam. You know, I've got a question for you, which is, you know, we have a bunch of, of founders in the crowd at the earliest of stages, right? Building, trying to explore ideas. Just what what do you wish that you knew when you were starting a company? Like what would be your best advice if you could take a time machine back and be like, hey, Ryan, this is what you should be doing differently. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to do that. I feel like we got so lucky and we would probably go off the rails and die. There were a million ways Flexport could have died and we got really lucky to be here. So I wouldn't, but uh, but if you force me to go back, um, I think, um, it's, it's, it's probably on the data, data modeling side, um, spending enough time to really understand your domain and what, what's, uh, what the data architecture needs to look like, um, what the technology architecture needs to look like to scale. I didn't spend enough time on this. Um, we built, we, we now have a lot of tech debt as a result. And again, like, I don't think I would go back because, we got here and like our approach worked. We kept adding features and being customer oriented, but um, I would make sure I would, in, if I, doing it again, I would have our once a quarter or like twice a year, probably have your tech org print on like the biggest printer you can get your, your, your data architecture, like all the different tables and how they're mapped to each other. So that you can see the spaghetti building that's creating chaos in your back end and know that this is going to slow you down like crazy as you get to scale um, and, and really put effort into getting the right data model. It probably means hiring more experienced data people than you have on your team. Um, tech Entrepreneurial tech people tend to be really good at like getting a V1 of an app out there really quickly. Um, but like things like Ruby on Rails are just kind of toxic because it just spins up a new database every time you want to do something. That's what makes Ruby on Rails so great is you don't have to do all that work. But then next thing you know, you have like so many databases everywhere and they're all interlinked and no one can figure out the system when it, when you get bigger. Um, so I would, I would overemphasize that data architecture piece and make sure you have people who really, really understand the domain. Um, you might think, Am I the misconception that I had that was like, oh, there's no good tech people in logistics. So I'm going to just bring tech people out of like hot social networking startups and have them figure out logistics. And it's just not true. There's lots of good tech people in logistics. Um, People who, and logistics has its own data architecture that's unique that someone from Facebook is just not going to know. And, and, and you don't have time for them to reinvent the wheel. You got to build on the shoulders of giants and, these things are out there. So I would, I would really encourage finding 
um, experts who understand the right architecture for your domain and what you're trying to solve and make sure you, if you build from the right way first, it's so much easier. Just like the, um, the things that I was saying about culture earlier, it's like so much easier to get it right early and scale from there than it is to try to go back and fix things. Um, the debt culture, debt tech debt is real and it's hard to change. It's awesome. And, and thanks for calling it out. And, you know, if you are a founder who's either a part of the program or thinking to join it, you have one of the best people and, and best companies in the world to figure this stuff out alongside you. So we're going to wrap with that. Thank you so much for coming, Ryan. This was an amazing session. We appreciate Thank you, all. you. And um, for the people who are seeing this in the future or listening in on a podcast, please apply to ODX Flexport. Either you're looking for some, to something to build or if you have a company already in the list in the supply chain space, we're, we'd be thrilled to back you. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks, everybody. Have a great evening. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.